Well, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, your Dana Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf Mem Dalet, page 44. Um, our daf continues, or begins the Gemara, really, um, that is on the very long Mishnah from yesterday. And I know, your Dana, you're going to talk about, you know, some aspect of the physical plant here that's very key to this discussion of the Mishnah. I want to talk about the a little bit about the Ketorit, about the incense, where there's a discussion, or really from the Mishnah, it talks about the burning of the incense um, in conjunction, I guess, with the presentation of the blood that we, you know, read about yesterday in the Mishnah. So, but this is a kind of, it's its own sidebar, really, specifically about the Ketorit. Ketorit mechaperet. It says, does the incense itself, does offering the incense, affect the atonement? Does it, ha- does it actually bring kapara? And the Gemara says, in, yes, yes, it does. The, we have a, a concept of atonement, specifically with regard to offerings that Rabbi Hanania teaches. This is from a Breita. We learned this. Because there's a verse in Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, chapter 17, where it says specifically that you give the Ketoret they would, they would offer the ketoret, the incense, and it would atone for the nation, for the people. For what does ketoret atone? Meaning, if uh, if we just if we could achieve atonement for every wrongdoing through ketoret, then we would, right? I mean, then we would just have incense all the time. We wouldn't have all the other korbanot. What specifically is it good for? hara, for slander, right? Meaning for for slander, evil speech, however you want to translate it, this is something that halachically is understood to be something that is, um, it is true, it is harmful, um, and it is prohibited, right? So the so the why, is the Gemara wants to know why is it, or it's going to give an explanation why it is that the Ketoret, Lashon Har specifically, Yavodavar Shebechashai, Bechaper Chashai, we take something that is done in secret, right? The Lashon Har itself, these, the, the whispering, the gossip kind of thing, is done in secret. And the Ketorit is offered on the internal Mizbeach, which is on the inner altar, which is also, um, you know, it's more secluded. It's a, something that is going to, it lines up with this idea of something that is said in secret is atoned for by an act done in secret. Um, now. There's a lot, a lot we could talk about about the incense, I think. Um, I think part of what I strikes me about this to begin with is that when we're talking about, um, let's call it temple worship, right? The, the, what they call in research, I guess, biblical research, they talk about the temple cult of worship, right? So that's very often about animal sacrifice. We know that, they also, that there was also an accompanying green sacrifice. And we know that every day had Ketorit you know, that was offered as well. We've talked about the fact that the Rambam con- conveys this to be um, a defumigation system, because if you think about all the animals that were there, then perhaps it was very smelly. There's a Midrash that says, no, no, it wasn't smelly at all. That's one of the miracles of the Beit Mikdash. So this idea that there's something, an incense in particular, that it is something um, that can atone for one's wrongdoing, and specifically something as, is interesting to me, that they talk about Lashonara as something that is hidden, I might have thought that they would talk about it as something that is amorphous, something that, you know, spreads out into the air, so to speak, right? You you speak 
ill in one location and the next thing you know, it's all over the place. And I feel like that is in part the scent of the Torah, this, that there's this idea that what this incense is doing is, you know, if we want to talk about defumigation, but it also does something in a spiritual, um, you know, lightening of the air or or perfuming of the air. I guess that's not necessarily the same as lightning, but, you know, in, in the sense of um, reducing the sin, that is exactly what we're talking about. And I, there's something about this that on the one hand is so foreign in terms of, you know, this is not the Judaism that we practice today in terms of <laughs> somebody lights incense nowadays. It's because it's a pleasing smell in their home. Right. Or, you know, as opposed to it being um, a spiritual mitzvah, you know, atonement kind of practice. And on the other hand, this is, I think, the most um, the kind of practice from the Beit HaMikdash that is the most possible to carry into our own generation because it doesn't involve animal sacrifice. And I think there's something in that we can that we can relate to, you know, in that spiritual plane a little bit more easily. Um, I think that is why people, you know, often, you know, will burn incense in all kinds of, I don't know, meditative kinds of settings. So, well, so. people don't do it just to, you know, they, you've heard of people doing it where they say like, I'm doing it to cleanse the air, you know, literally. Right. And exactly. so, there's something cleansing about this. I mean, I love the connection that it made. It's exactly as you said, Anne, about this, you know, the Katoid and specifically with Lashon Hara, right? Like they both sort of spread the same way. <laughs> it has the, the sense of Lashon Hara, I think, has a way of just sort of wafting through the air and getting into all these places that you didn't intend um, for it to get to. But, you know, it's this contrast of having these two elements of Katoid versus also the animal sacrifice, if the Beit HaMikdash were to be rebuilt today, many of us, I don't think, would have any issue with Ketoret coming back. I think animal sacrifice, I'm sure there's a large number of us who this would be a difficult piece to have reinstated. Right, exactly. So on the one hand, I feel that Ketoret, it's foreign to my way of being, you know, as a, as a symbol of worship, as an item of worship. On the other hand, it's much more familiar in some ways than the the more visceral, literally visceral animal worship. Um, so I'm going to move on to the next part of the Gemara here, which is on the top of Ahmed Bet. And it's, you know, they quoted a Brysa here, and now they're discussing a little bit more deeply the Brysa. Amar Mar, right? Kach Horshim Bishat Matan Parkoim Mashiach, Upar Helim Davar Shel Tzibor U Siire Avodat Kochavim. So we separate from basically the area of like, I guess we would call like the antechamber and the altar when you uh, apply the blood of the bull of the anointed Kohen and the blood of the, you know, communal uh, bull and the, uh, and the he goats of, uh, and the goats of Avodat Kochavim. So basically what this Brisa is discussing is, is that there's a prohibition, right? You're not allowed to go into this area when uh, these types of blood applications are happening during these particular types of korbanot. Um, and one of the things that the DAP describes here is that actually this is a rabbinic, um, pro, you know, this is rabbinically prohibited. It's not prohibited um, from the Torah itself. And so the Gemara wants to discuss this a little bit more, right? Minalan, where how do we know this, that you can't go into parts of the sanctuary when you're doing the blood piece of the avoda, right? These blood applications. I'm a Ravi Padat. So Ravi Padat says, 
Ate kapara kapara miyom hakipurim. So he does this from a gazer sheva, right? Where one needs to leave the sanctuary during Yom Kippur. Um, and the word kapara is used um, in uh, both, you know, in both places, right? So we basically have uh, the kapara is used in connection with the prohibition of being in the heichal uh, during the blood service of uh, all of these offerings. And so just as you can't be in the heichal, right, during the ketorah and the blood service of the Kaddish Kadoshim, you also can't be there in the, in the heichal, blood services of these types of offerings, because it uses both of those are cases of kapara. So then the Gemara wants to talk a little bit more about that, right? Amar Rav um, Adabar Ahava, right? So Rav Adabar Ahava says, Shmamina ma'alota oraita. So we really learn from this that this, you know, this uh, this stringency, right, that we're talking about with the Beit HaMikdash is actually a deoraisa. It's actually a biblical origin. Right? And we were actually taught it basically as halachala motion misina. It was just something that was taught. If you thought that it was actually Rabbanan, right? Why do we make some distinction between this area of the ulam, the antechamber, and the Mizbeach, right, from the rest of basically the courtyard, right? Dilma Mikraud the right? Because basically the rabbis were concerned that one could sort of accidentally somehow get into the sanctuary. So if that's really the case, then we should say you're not even allowed in the Azarat. Like if we're worried that somehow somebody's going to sort of like wander on into the Heichal, we shouldn't just make a distinction between the Ulam and the Heichal. We should also make a distinction between the Azarat, which is that outer, outer courtyard. So why is it that the rabbis single out specifically when they were talking about this you know, ulam to heichal um, difference there. So then the Gemara is basically going to say, no, this is the reason why there's really a distinction here. Bein ha'ulam v'la mizbeach, right? Between the ulam and the mizbeach, keivan delo mavsik midei. Nothing separates them, right? Lo minikre milsa. You would basically just sort of, you could accidentally sort of like just walk into the place that you're not supposed to actually walk into because it's not recognizable. But the Azarab, the rest of that main courtyard, you have that outer Mizbeach that's there that sort of separates it, right? It's actually very obvious where is the part that you're not supposed to walk into. And so therefore, they didn't have to make this prohibition of being in the Azarab because it's very clear sort of like where the Azarab ends and where you can't go. But this area of the Ulam was a little bit more complicated and therefore, um, you know, it, it didn't have to do with different levels of, of Kedusha, but it just had to do with a practical piece of, you know, making sure that nobody violated the prohibition of being somewhere where they were not supposed to be. I think what was interesting to me about this is it, it makes sense why the rabbis made this decree. In other words, it's an area that it sounds like you sort of could have just like stumbled into. But I guess I'm thinking of it like from a broader point of view, which is, why would you set, like, why would by design, when like the Mishkan, the Beit HaMikdash is being set up, why would it be that sort of there's an area that's prohibited that's not readily discernible? And so almost by design, the rabbis had to come and add this additional prohibition. Like there's something about it that's not fully logical to me. Um, so I don't have a good answer. I'm really just posing a question about this whole line of thinking. 
like if, you, if, if, if we believe that the dimensions and everything came from God, right, we see it all laid out basically, you know, uh, when they build the Mishkan. So why not build it so that those areas are easily discernible? And, and it's almost like you made something that like had to be corrected. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I don't have an answer for you. I think it's a good question, especially this question of like, why wasn't it done in a way that would make it easier? Unless the point is the challenge, right? But um, okay, but that's what fair. It, like maybe it is. It's to be challenged, and that you have to be careful about space, even if the space isn't care. Oh, I think I like that answer actually, because in other words, okay. the whole idea of the Beit Hamikdash is it's somehow to do shot makom, right? It's it's holiness right. of space. It's in a way, it's challenging us to say, you know, can you recognize holiness of space without there being the usual markers we have of space? The rabbis basically come and say, like, no, we can't actually trust you. So we're going to make this extra prohibition in here. But well, maybe so that this was is the, what original I want to comment- the original challenge. So this is what I wanted to comment on in our own day. Right. This is where for, you know, generations, nobody went up to the Temple Mount. Nobody Jewish went up to the Temple Mount because we don't go to the Temple Mount because we don't know where we can stand or where we can't stand. Right. And so we better not go because we don't know. And then in the past I did the math the other day. It's something like 20 years, maybe, maybe a little less, a little more than that. People have slowly, slowly, and now, of course, in force, um, started going to the Temple Mount where we've guides who know, you know, who've done the study or whatever to say, this is the part where you can't stand. This is the part where you can stand. So that, and it's no more demarcated than it ever was. If anything, it's much less demarcated than it ever was. And so this idea of being aware of where you are and whether you can go or you can't go to the Temple Mount you know, this is a halakha question, but it's all rooted in this question of where can you go that you can't go, right? Meaning how to make sure that you don't go where you can't go. And so just in a in a shifting of mindset, I think it's interesting in our own day to see the difference. And then to see it here on the DAF, you know, it lines up perfectly in terms of the modern question with the, the ancient one. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a good comment. It's a good thought about this passage. Okay, thank you. Um, you answered okay. you answer my question. So this is an example, everyone, where we don't always prep exactly what we're going to say. We sort of just like pick our topics out. <laughs> um, but we don't always review with each other, like, what am are you going to comment on? So this was a, a good natural back and, back and forth. Right. Um, I just want to, before we close up today, I wanted to mention the, there's commentary in the Gemara on the details of the Mishnah about how the what the pans were made of, right? There was concern about the the whether it was gold and then it was silver, right? Meaning the, the Mishnah says, Bacholyom, and I'm now I'm reading in the Gemara on Amabet, Bacholyom Hayachotebashil Kesef, right? This is a statement that every day he would use um Kesef and then he would pour from the from the gold. No, I'm sorry, he would pour from the silver into the gold. But on this day, meaning on Yom Kippur, he would just use gold the whole time. So the Gemara says, Maitama, Hatorah Chasa al Mumonan Shil Yisrael. So we again have this rationale that the 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 pan that was used for every day for the for the heaviest lifting, let's say, not the heaviest lifting of the whole avoda, but between this gold pan and the and the silver pan, the silver pan got more wear and tear. And the idea of having it be silver as opposed to gold, apparently, you know, is a cheaper metal. Cheaper is maybe not fair. A less expensive metal, um, and therefore it would have. It could, you know, the wear and tear on it was of a less cost on a less costly item. So the B'nai Israel, you know, the tax money or whatever would be that much less. 
right? The pan is going to be worn away, you know, as you use it. And so then they can get a new one if they need to for from the less expensive silver. But on this day, right? He would use he would use the, the gold to scoop up the coals to begin with, and then he would go into the Kodesh Kodeshim with those same coals. My Tama, what's the rationale that you know that this day would be gold? Because the Kohen himself, we have to protect him to make sure that he's not too weak, right? Due to the weakness of the Kohen Gadol, we would only it's only gold, so that he only has to do the one movement, let's say, of getting the coals into the gold, as opposed to getting them into the one pan and then transferring into the other, which is just more physical exertion on a day that he is doing just about everything by himself while fasting and not having slept, right? Meaning, so you put it all together, and it's an interesting thing that for for all that there is, again, we've talked about this before, so much prescription of the detail of exactly how the avoda is going to work on this day, and the fact that the Kohen Gadol has to do all of these very precise you know, activities with even to the precision of what the metal of the pan is. On the other hand, we see here, I would say, two instances of rachamim, of mercy. One on the money of the Bani Israel, which we've seen previously. We could do your data for one of those dissertations. Somebody could go look up, you know, all the different times that the Gemara claims that there is a, a monetary leniency on Am Yisrael, on the tax situation. For, for temple worship, right? And then secondly, on the Kohen himself, that he should not be overstressed on a day when he really needs his energy. So in both of these cases, we see, I would say, the halacha itself coming to accommodate, you know, the broader need in a way that I think is indeed, you know, merciful, whatever, a, a kinder, gentler approach. It still doesn't totally make sense to me. Like of all the expenses that were in the temple, again, this may mean I have no understanding of how much things cost, <laughs> but it just seems like this is odd that this is where they got, you know, sort of wanted to save money. Whereas, and again, I know it was paid personally by the Cohen Gadol, but, you know, they spent all this time talking about how much money the clothing could have cost. Uh, it, there's something about it that just, it, it doesn't seem to fit with all the other costs of what the Beit Dash were. Like why definitely here are you saving money? Right. So I, I feel I, I hear this question. I've internalized this question actually when I was preparing. I was like, well, but really, you know, like I've taken your question to be my own as well. I think that the I think that we at some point really do need to go and find all of the different cases where this is used as an explanation for something. And then perhaps we can ascertain a common denominator, right? Like why these things as opposed to those other things, um, where do we where this is invoked? Yeah, I that that may be a possibility, right? And I don't know that we have a good framing because this isn't a concept that we've seen before. So we'll need to see if we see it again later. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 